what she wanted to dance I politely declined naturally I said I really hate this band We went for a coffee at a little cafe I had more picks in my pocket than I had spare change She said hold it right there Just stop where you are Not another guy Not another guitar Hello and welcome to the Should Be Famous podcast. I am Clayton Pixon. You guys are in for a real treat today. We have Bob Walkenhorst. Wait till you hear this guy. I guess you already have a little bit. He is from the Kansas City, Missouri area and very talented and uh, great, great musician. So here you go. Enjoy. podcast. I'm Clayton Pixton, and I'm here with a man named Bob Walkenhorst. What a cool name, you say. Well, not only <laughs> is it a cool name, but he's a very cool guy. I know Bob because he is my wife's uncle's good friend, Ron. So Bob Walkenhorst is best known as the front man for a group called Rainmakers that was active in the late 80s, early 90s. Since then, He's gone solo and done a duo album, mm-hmm. and he plays uh, pretty much weekly here at the Record Bar, and that's where we are right now, before his show. So, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Nice concept. We should be famous. <laughs> <laughs> so that our listeners know uh, what you're best known for, and you're really more than should be famous, you're... You probably qualify as already famous the rainmakers back in the day had some songs that charted mm-hmm. or had some position on the pop charts and you guys were voted best band best new band of the year or something well I'll, I, can, I can kind of clarify some Please. of that yeah it's been a long time back you know it's been the tw- almost 25 years uh, our band had our first album in 1986 and uh, that kind of started the the pattern that was kind of the way the band's career went is that in certain places we'd be extremely popular and then 50 miles down the road no one had ever heard of us and that was just that's kind of the way it went all the way around the world we used to say that we had fans all over the world one in every country and yeah. uh that's sometimes the way it felt when we were touring europe it's like well you'd go to one city in germany and all hell would break loose you go to the next city in germany and nobody would be there but well, we uh we were one of those rootsy american bands that kind of did better in europe than in the states which a lot of the rootsy american bands from the 80s it kind of went that way you kind of make your initial impact here and then it would kind of go downhill whereas you would slowly you slowly build things in europe and that was the way it went for us we did have a, a top 20 single in england in 1986-87 which let, was a lot of fun it put let us, my people go let go. my people go go which put us in the position to be, you know, on the BBC and on top of the pops and tour England and play uh, the Astoria Theater and you know, a lot of a lot of very cool experiences. 
Uh, sold a lot. Sold a lot of albums in Scandinavia for for some reason. We don't. You never really know Norway why. Norway was. Norway was big. Yeah. Sweden was pretty good. Finland was always a good time. Interesting. Yeah, you never know why. <laughs> and then the, and when we toured those areas, we we'd find all these rootsy. Finnish and Norwegian bands that would always have the best Fender and Gibson guitars you had ever saw. Wow. Saved huge amounts of money to buy their... They took their roots the American music seriously. Interesting. Yeah. So that's the Rainmakers. And I want to play uh, for our listeners a couple songs from that first CD, which was your top-selling uh, CD, right? Well, it depends on who you ask. It was the top-selling... Yeah. Certainly the top-selling in America. We put out three albums on Mercury, uh, Mercury Worldwide, and... The first one was the biggest one in the States, second one a little less, third one a little less. Well, it was the reverse in Europe. The first one had a hit, but it had a hit it had a hit single, but it actually the second one sold more and the third one sold more than that. So huh. it was kind of a reverse in Europe. I want to play for our listeners uh, one track that I like, Downstream. Secrets where the catfish crawl The Mississippi River flowing Downstream, meet the Gulf of Mexico Somewhere downstream Meet the Atlantic Ocean Somewhere downstream Gonna meet you in the water Somewhere downstream Picked a pair of children floating down from independence We said, what about the war? He said, good riddance We said, what about the bomb? Are you sorry that you did it? He said, pass me that bottle And mind your own business And the Mississippi River flowing Downstream, meet the Gulf of Mexico Somewhere well, downstream, well, downstream that you played was, was kind of that's, That was our good Missouri calling card you know, A song about Mark Twain And Harry Truman and Chuck Berry And me <laughs> and that, you know, that was a kind of a nice fantasy trip down the Mississippi River that pulled in a lot of things about the war and the bomb. And this and that. We were around in St. Louis and heading for the coast when we picked up Chuck Berry in a little rowboat with one oar in the water and one in the air. A lightning rod for a white guitar and lightning struck once and lightning struck twice in a set of. Uh, that's very. Uh, very punchy rhythms there and very clever lyrics, which you're known for. And two chords. See, what are the other uh, major songs from that album? Well, we, we got a lot of attention on our first CD from, uh, I, I can say CD, actually we have the, the footnote in American music history of being the first of being the first major label release that was released simultaneously on all three formats. We were at LP, CD, and cassette all at the same time. It used to be in the 80s when an LP, a major release would come out, even if it was Bruce Springsteen or somebody, it would still be a month to two months before the CD was out. So we were the first one, first major label release that was simultaneous on all three formats. Wow. But we didn't have eight tracks. 
<laughs> yeah, that's all, okay. That, yeah, we would have all four formats that way. Yeah, that's okay. But um, our first album got a lot of good press uh, because of the subject matter. There were really, really weren't any love songs on that album. It was it was a lot of social observation. Yeah, I noticed that. And uh, the nice thing about songs is they're 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 not that many words. You know, it leaves a lot of space for interpretation. And so we had both kind of right wing conservatives saying that this, they found their message in those songs and then we had left wing anarchists saying they found their message in those songs that's you know that's good to have a wide base give a man a free house and he'll bust out the windows put his family on food stamps now he's a big spender no food on the table and the bills ain't paid cause he's spending on cigarettes and pga they'll turn us all into beggars cause they're easier to please they're feeding our song that was very literally about welfare and about, I mean, it was just kind of an angry little tirade about not, oh, about that welfare didn't accomplish anything. And that was really the song that kind of politically got the most reaction because right, kind of conservative right-wing people would say, well, yeah, it's uh, in, it's an indictment of the welfare state, whereas left, the left-wing would say, so, where they said, well, no, this is about an indictment of Reagan politics, so... Whereas the song itself is really just kind of a reaction. I, I lived in a neighborhood that had a lot of welfare housing, saw a lot of people very stuck in that level where, well, if they got off of welfare, they weren't, they didn't have the education or the means to make more out of their life, so they just stayed where they were. And I just kind of wrote this song about the, the emotional reaction to that situation rather than any kind of really articulated political opinion. And uh, the... The song that was a top 20 single in England was called Let My People Go Go, which was a uh, kind of a fun rock and roll song about religion, which is always kind of hard to make a fun rock and roll song about religion, but I think I, I, may, I may be the only person that's ever really done it. It just kind of cross-references people from the Bible saying lines from old rock and roll songs, which it's all kind of the same thing to me. Moses went up to the mountain high to find out from God, why did you make us? Why? Secret words in a secret room. He said, Wop, bop, a loop, bop, a lot, bam, boom. I did not put you here to so 
everybody always picking on me. I did not put you here to suffer. I want to skip a little bit past uh, some of the other, because you've put out a number of albums. Uh, Rainmakers alone did five, mate, or six? We, we did, yeah, did three for Mercury US uh, that were sold worldwide, and then we did two more for Mercury Canada and Scandinavia. Okay, so, and then you've done some solo things, and I want to skip uh, to one that, just because it's one of the first ones I encountered, which was called The Width of a Line. I'm not making this up. When I heard that and I saw it on the video, uh, that was, with the exception of one of my own songs played backwards, which I can't get enough of, that <laughs> song was the catchiest song I had. I felt like I had ever heard, it just immediately. Well, just thank you. Cool. Very, very catchy. Very uh, rhythmic, just straight ahead rock, and and just the music and the everything. So uh, let me play that for you now. You have it in this key, right? Um, duh, like say it's there. Duh. Yeah. Yeah, it's and then the melody goes. So it's like the minor seven, the one, the third, minor seven. You know, the chord that you're playing doesn't have that seven in it, but you're singing it. And it's just so. John Lennon did that all the time. And the chord that's being held all through the verses is the fifth of, the, of what the key that the song right. is in. Yeah, yeah. the song's actually and You don't realize that until the chorus comes. Yeah, because it's, like, it's like, like oh, a minute and a half cool. later. Yeah, yeah. 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 Those songs, I've always liked those songs. Pete Townsend would always write those big suspensions. She's sitting at home with the radio on to that mystery station that nobody owns. It just kind of holds you up there in the air, holds you up there in the air. They're never going to let you down. I'm have. plugged, I'm wired, I'm tuned. I'm hoping I'm the wolf man of love and the lines are open. And when they finally oh, let you down to that root note, then uh, it was a yeah. great release kind of feeling. Yeah, it's a rush. Glad you noticed. Yeah, come on, let's dance, let's dance on the width of the line. Where a heart meets heart, mind meets mind, and love's in the air.
you play pretty much weekly, and uh, you've got some very loyal uh, fans. What are some of their all-time favorites? Well, you know, the interesting thing about being a... Um about having a musical history now that's, you know, like I said, almost 25 years. The Rainmakers made five albums. I've made a solo record. Uh, now I've made one with my musical partner, Jeff Porter. So it starts being a lot of songs, and you, you find out. Sometimes you find out, sometimes you don't find out. But every once in a while you do find out that this song means the world to somebody. But it's not the song that you would have necessarily thought would have ever meant the world to somebody. Um, so there's a difference between what other people's favorite songs are and what yours maybe songs kind of have this cosmic magnetism to them as they pass through time and as they pass through people's lives they they gain density you know whether i know it about it or not they just kind of do as people attach the events of their life to them and they attach their emotions to them and i think that's why i mean some of the huge songs of the world you know, like Imagine or something like that, that so many people have attached their own meanings to those songs. Those songs are like a, uh, you know, they're like a collapsed star. You know, they have this huge gravitational pull to them. They, they carry an energy about them, which is, when I start thinking about music, I just get, uh, <laughs> I just want, I have to laugh because it's like it's this totally intangible thing. You can't even touch a song. You know, you can't really... Even though there's a recording, that's not really the song. The song only exists when you play the recording. And yet this group of notes and words that somebody puts together has an identity and it has a, a life of its own and it, it can pull together all this, this energy from people. And on my own small scale, it's a hugely gratifying feeling when I know that this song really meant something to someone and they have a there's a meaning to it that i'll never know the depth of that the meaning that it had in their life so that's the beauty of being a songwriter is that you're not a novelist you know you're not writing essays you're writing these structures these frameworks for people to apply their own meaning and their own their own life into it that's a great job <laughs> well you you definitely have some very uh, poignant and clever lyrics and some very original thoughts in your uh well i used to be more clever than i am now <laughs> clever clever wears thin after a while well clever isn't the most i don't know if that's the right word they some of them are very clever but maybe original or uh off the beaten path or either you know things that people have thought about but they haven't ever expressed well, that's kind of uh, where the rainmakers started was try as far as an original music band was really a conscious effort to try to write songs about subjects that people hadn't written songs about that um, really so it was conscious yeah there was conscious I, and I think it was really conscious for just for me I don't know that it was really conscious for the band but for me at that time in my life where I was really getting serious about being a songwriter and realizing that I had people listening we had you know we had this great little local rock and roll band that people could kind of feel the the energy and the commitment we had it's like well you better give them something worth their time to listen to so uh, those components all came together at this at the right time and at the same time where i thought okay well i could write another love song but it's probably not going to be as good as here there and everywhere you know it's not going to be as good as uh, some chris christopherson song i could probably write a very interesting song about religion though that hasn't been ever articulated that and that just became the fun aspect of it, finding those subjects that people hadn't exhausted, and finding and finding a way to make a, a rock and roll song out of it. You know, not making some eight-minute 
verbal <laughs> avalanche about all your opinions about it. Just kind of write a rock and roll song about something that someone hadn't written a rock and roll song about before. I, it, it was just a really fun challenge, and it still is. The garbage man got trashed. The janitor got messy. The taxi driver got smashed. And the waitress, she got tipsy. In Kansas City, New York City, great big city. Change the world is still looking for its car keys. The terrorist got bombed. The president got So how hit. how do you uh, right? Do you go over your lyrics after the fact and work them and only only to a, a small extent, you know? I'll uh, when I did my solo album is six years ago now. I had the superstition. The beginner? Yeah, the beginner. I wasn't going to write down any of the lyrics. Uh, all the songs were going to be carried in my head, and if I needed to revise them or anything, they'd just have to be bouncing around in my head. And, and I also, you know, I would write songs and forget about them, and I figured if they weren't good enough for me to remember, well, that's a nice <laughs> self-editing <laughs> process. You just something. forget about them. So I didn't ever write down in a, huh, in a notebook or anything uh, the songs, and, and I've done that at times before. Yeah, I, I kind of compose in my head. And then, you know, if I'm exhausted or something, I'll take some notes just so I don't forget it. But uh, I don't go back and rework things too much. It's funny, though, after, you know, there'll be some song that's 15 or 20 years old that I'll make a, a small lyric change in, and I'll decide, oh, I think I'll keep it that way, and I'll have people call me out on it. It's hey, like, what it's 20 years ago, that? man. You've been singing that song this way for 20 years. You can't yeah, change it that. now. <laughs> it's, it's just a song. I'm rocking on to no abandon A little town to make my home Cross seven wells and the haunted canyon Through the cooling plains where my heart... So what are some of your favorites to play these days in, in a show? You know, it, it, it's funny. The songs that physically feel good to sing... The songs that physically feel good under your fingers on a guitar aren't, aren't necessarily always the best songs, but those are the songs that you come back and play over and over just because they feel good. Like and, which one? Oh, Let My People Go-Go is a very difficult song to sing, and it's kind of a difficult song to play. It's got a lot of chords in it, and it's one of those things that's better as a recording almost than as a live performance, and we rarely play it. Um, so what's one that you do play that you we play that you like to feel of? feels or? good. Um, Downstream always feels pretty good. Yeah, it's, it's, it's good. not. You know, it's not the musically the most adventurous song in the world, but it always has a you know just a great set. It's got a great groove. punchy. Yeah. Also the the drums on uh, information. Oh, information. Mm -hmm. Which you do different live than on the recording, right? Yeah, I, you know that's funny. I don't ever listen to the our old records. Um, and I kind of forget that they have sometimes dra they've evolved drastically in some cases. Uh, I think the original recording of 
information. Actually, the whole first Rainmakers record and the second Rainmakers albums were all drum machine. You know, this was the middle of the 80s when drum machines were taking over the world. And there was just no question our producer and record company said, well, we're going to make this record this way. So we were programming these drum patterns, and it has some weird information, it has some weird five-polar measure after enough years of throwing in a measure of five four the rock and roll the real rock and roll purist and he said that's you know that's just unnecessary can't you just play it in can't you just keep things square boys let's just keep it in four so you throw in a couple more beats and well you know it has it for four why didn't we do that we do it that way to begin with but those are the little evolutions that I forget about Two daughters and a granddaughter. Um, anything else we should say about that? I think family, it has so much to do with everyone's life and the course of your life. When you're a musician, I mean, part of being a musician is being gone. If you're really a full-time working musician, you have to travel. It's, it's unavoidable. And so you have to make decisions in your life about what is the, what's the price tag you are comfortable living with. And in about 1991, I decided that the price tag of being a free spirit out on the road without a family was not the price tag that felt right to me anymore. So that's when the band, I called a halt to the band and uh, got married you were, uh, and had some kids. Because that, that was, you know, I'm not saying everybody has to do that, but me, I needed to do that. I needed to have some content and some weight in my life. It, it just didn't a, feel right. It took a toll on your uh, your own family life. Well, I was right when you started, I was married right? to somebody else, and the band was really touring a lot in the '80s. But I I could see the prices that the other band members were playing. You know, each guy, um, two of our members missed a birth. You know, we were in we weren't even in the country when their kids were born. And um, you just have to ask yourself, you know, what's it worth? What's it worth to you? So. You know, I, I reached a point where I took a kind of a hard left turn and said, "Okay, this music's going to go away for a while, and I'm going to be going to be a dad for a while." I couldn't do both at the same time. So, and I don't regret it at all. I mean, it's kind of the course that I was supposed to take. So, you might have answered my question, but I was going to ask about right when Ron first introduced me to you. You told me, I'm sure you don't remember, but he said something like, or you said something like. Uh, Fit your music into your life, not the other way around. It took me a long time to learn that. I have to be there. Interesting. I, I can't imagine how it would work. That's uh, well, I don't I've of, never done it. So. Lots of musicians have done it, and you know, with with varying degrees of success.
Is there anything else that I uh, left out important? Well, I, you know, going back to kind of the, the concept of your of your podcast here about who should be famous and who shouldn't be famous and who who ought to be and isn't or isn't like that. I know a lot of musicians who never got their shot. You know, never got to make a record and never got to. And, and you know, they carry it around. They carry it around like a burden. They carry it around like, oh, if only this, if only that, if only people knew how brilliant I was. You know, I'm a pretty pretty satisfied guy. I'm still artistically driven. Um, I feel like that I, I hit a, a good balance in my life of having a, a family and personal life and music on the terms that would fit that life. And, you know, as long as I can find things that are creatively interesting to me, I think I'm as famous as I'm supposed to be. You know, I don't think that you can always measure your personal success by, by the numbers. And, you know, I mean... If that was the case, McDonald's would be the, the best food in the world, and it's not. <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes you just have to, you have to be, you have to work a little harder and find the way it works in your life. And, and so I don't know that I should be more famous. I just, thought, <laughs> I just wanted to answer the question of the title of your program. I think I'm as famous as I'm supposed to be. Well, that seems like a very uh, healthy attitude. What, uh, what drives you, Bob, with your uh, artistic impetus? Debt. Huge, insurmountable debt. No. <laughs> um, it's just, you know, it, it's the same thing. It's kind of a big circle. I, I mean, you think about when any musician starts playing music when you're in your early teens or something. Yeah, you, wanna, you want people to notice you and you want, you know, you want to meet girls and you want to do this and that. But it's still, it's mostly about just that sound that you're making that, You'll sit in your bedroom and play for hours on end to nobody just because that feeling of sound coursing through your body and you've figured out how to make sound with your fingers on these on this guitar. It's just such, it's a spiritual experience. It's a primal experience. People have been doing it for centuries, eons. And that's where you start. I think that's where any musician starts. And then you can kind of go around the great big circle and say, wow, I can make money doing this. Okay, now I can go travel the world doing this. I can play in other countries. How do I keep making money doing it? Oh no, how, who, do we ha- who do we have to pay? And it starts getting very complicated, running as, making music as a business. But if you follow the circle far enough, it comes back around to the beginning again where you're like, wow, just making these sounds. I remember that feeling. That's the way it felt when I was 14. I can still feel that. Uh, you go all the way around and the very... Th- things that made you write your first song will pretty much be the same things that make you write your 500th song. Hmm. It's just an idea uh, of the way two or three words play together. The way uh, well, I picked up the guitar. <laughs> Sometimes the guys I play with think I'm crazy, I'm sure, but I picked up the guitar as we were setting up for sound check and I just strummed something and I said, I have never played those two chords in my life. You know, and they're like, oh, sure you have. And like, no, not those two, one right after another. I've never done that. And huh. those little moments where these little these six strings and the way you place your fingers on them you find something oh there's there's a new combination 
it's still just magic to me that there can be that many different combinations that still electrify you, still intrigue you, still make something move down in, inside yourself. And that's what always keeps me coming back to it because it just it's infinitely interesting if you huh. don't get too sidetracked by all the the detours and the trappings and the ambitions just just play the music Bob, I'd like to thank you for coming on the podcast. My, my and, pleasure, Clayton. Uh, nice to talk. As you notice, I know I have no shortage of words. <laughs> well, all of them uh, priceless. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I want to tell you where to get Bob Walkenhorst stuff. His latest album is called No Abandon. It's a joint project with a guy who plays with him named Jeff Porter. Uh, if you go to bobwalkenhorst.com and Go on the link to the Village Records. Mm-hmm. Or go, go to Rainmakers.com. The Rainmakers okay. still have a very active website. Or you can go to MySpace.com slash Walkenhorst and Porter. Okay. And, and uh, next time we'll talk about No Abandon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll give that some more time. All right. Thank you, Bob. Well, there you go, Bob Walkenhorst, everybody. Isn't he great? I just want to mention a couple things we didn't get to in our interview. Number one, uh, his day job, which he does have. Bob is a video editor, and if my sources are correct, he does freelance. He used to work for a place, and now he's freelancing. Also, Bob paints. He's a painter, and I've seen his work there, and it's uh, very, very good, actually. So that's Bob Walkenhorst. Hope you enjoyed it. He mentioned at the end, No Abandon. That's his last album. It's really quite good, and it really deserves some time, and we I decided not to try to get to that this time because we had, were already running long with the time. So I'm going to leave that open to do his new album, No Abandon, at another time, but check it out on iTunes or on the website that he mentioned on the Rainmaker site. That's it. I'm Clayton Pixon. This is the Should Be Famous podcast. Please visit us at www.shouldbefamous.com. And uh, feel free to leave a comment, also uh, rainmakers.com. Sure they'd love a comment on there about it. We'll see you next time. Let's